Booking people to be on the show is kind of easy in the age of COVID-19. Everyone's home with time on their hands. It's even easier if the guest is a professional recording artist. So let's see. I'm rolling on my end. Are you rolling on yours? Okay, recording now. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. My guest this week, a musician with lots of hit songs and bipolar disorder. My name is Stephen Page, and uh, I'm a singer, songwriter, and standing in my basement just outside of uh, Syracuse, New York right now. Stephen Page is probably best known for making a lot of fun and funny up-tempo music with the band he co-founded, Bare Naked Ladies. You know, these guys. It's been one week since you looked at me Cocked your head to the side and said I'm angry Five days since you laughed at me Saying get back together, come back and see me That song went to number one in the U.S. The band was even more popular in Canada. They're in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. Stephen left Bare Naked Ladies in 2009. The band continues to play and record without him. Stephen has had an active career since then, putting out solo work and touring. Now he's staying home because of the virus. He says sheltering at home was a little scary at first. But I kind of felt okay. I thought I had the same thought I think so many other people had, which was, you know, the, the, the finish your novel meme that's around, I guess, um, right. where I thought, well, I've got an album's worth of material that's in various stages of completion. I'll go home and I'll make this album. Um, and I went home and I recorded one song, but the kind of thing that would take me 45 minutes before was taking me all day. And, you know, these days would be, I feel like I was busy the whole day and it was kind of felt interminable. But then by the end of the day, I'd feel like I didn't do anything. And so after I finished that, I kind of like just crashed out on the couch for a few weeks and emptied Netflix of everything that was available. <laughs> and then for the last few weeks, it's been good. I've been like, the only we really weird thing for me is like when I, in previous times of having depressive episodes, I would sleep at the drop of a hat and, you know, like have trouble getting up in the morning. And now I like I wake up between 4.30 and 6 every day and there's no choice. I'm just out of bed and I'm doing stuff. And that's, that's great. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's when, when, when depression and anxiety play together nicely. Stephen Page grew up in suburban Toronto. Depression came calling at an early age. And like a lot of people, when it first hits, Stephen had no idea what it was. Well, I had this memory. <clears throat> I realized that that suicidal ideation had been a part of my life for as long as I could remember. And I, I, had, I realized, I remembered walking home from school one day and, uh, well, probably many days, but I remember specifically one day of walking home from school and imagining the knife I was going to get out of the kitchen knife drawer. Um, and I was probably six. Um, and I, it, it wasn't until I was in my thirties that it kind of dawned on me that that's not how everybody thinks, um, that that wasn't the normal way a six-year-old's brain should work. I mean, awareness of suicide is one thing um, or being upset about something, but just having, you know, have the idea of having a plan. Thankfully, I know now that knife was super dull. My mom never had sharp knives. 
Stephen skipped a grade in elementary school. He was in a gifted program, and that, combined with the depression, gave him a strong sense of otherness, which continued into high school. When I was about halfway through high school, I, I switched high schools to a performing arts school. And I went there, and I, I kind of had a lousy time. Like I felt like I was a an idealistic young artist who thought he was Holden Caulfield. And, you know, a lot of these kids were more concerned. I saw them as being more concerned with getting their headshots done and auditioning for McDonald's commercials. And I wanted to learn the Stanislavski method and, and right. uh, you know, work on Ibsen stuff. And so I spent a lot of time in the cafeteria by myself with my Walkman on, listening to music or walking home from the bus stop. Um, all that kind of stuff would, that music was a constant companion through my teenage years. And, you know, that, that saved me more than, more than anything else. He was at a party in his late teens when he ran into Ed Robertson, a kid he had known since the gifted program in grade school. They had both been playing music and writing songs, had never really been close. And I said to him, um, do you want to go see Bob Dylan? And he said, mm, no. I said, do you <laughs> like Bob Dylan? He said, no. I said, well, I already have tickets, um, and I don't have anybody to go with me, so it would be free. And he said, okay, let's go. So we went and spent the day like laughing around. The, it was at the, the Canadian National Exhibition in Toronto, and then went to the big CNE grandstand to watch the show where we were in the last row and couldn't hear anything and had no idea which song he was playing until seven minutes into the song. <laughs> so we were just pretending we were old rock critics, and we'd be like – well, remember that uh, band that was on at, at uh, Woodstock before the cameras were rolling, Bare Naked Ladies, these two guys with hip waders who'd sing about, like, tomato soup and tuna salad and stuff? And we were like, oh, of course. Yeah, they were one of, the, one of the greats, but they got lost in the shuffle. Before long, Ed and Stephen formed a musical duo called Bare Naked Ladies, tight harmonies and lyrics that showed they weren't taking themselves too seriously perfect for Canadian audiences. Concerts filled up. A lo-fi demo tape they had made went platinum. They resonated. And another side of Stephen emerged. I think being with those guys helped me become uh, outgoing in a way. Um, you know, the band started as just me and Ed and then quickly grew and became a five-piece group. And, you know, a lot of the way that we related to each other was with humor. And I think the other thing was uh, musically what was happening at that time, you're looking at 87, 88, um, it's kind of the Joshua Tree era of U2, the black and white uh -huh. photographs and the, 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 the dour expressions. And right. we saw a lot of that with our, our cohort in the Toronto club scene. And we, we felt like it was phony baloney. And you know, we wanted to do the opposite. You were diagnosed later in your life uh, with bipolar disorder. When you look back on when you were young, are you able to trace, oh, okay, that's, that's what that was. That's, that's when that appeared. Yeah, I think that, you know, the depression was there. You know, I talked about a few of the kind of the changes I had over the course of my life, but the depression was there before that. Um, and... I think that in those moments of stress and uh, isolation, my response was often to isolate myself even more. Um, the manic side manifested mostly in things like, you know, if it was there, it was it manifested more in things like 
temper tantrums. Uh, I think more than anything else. I mean, you know, anger can be a big part of of that side of a, a bipolar dis- uh, diagnosis. Um, but you know, I think people who are around me who don't necessarily understand the whole picture think, well, that kind of boisterousness on stage followed by moroseness off stage must be an indicator of that. But I don't think that's necessarily part of the part of the um the symptoms of of what I experience. I think I'm you know, I do love performing and I put energy into it. And I th- I've also been very good at for the most part of being able to put on the mask when I need to. Did you think it was just an artistic temperament when you would when you would be that way? Absolutely. You know, I have the song Brian Wilson um, which I wrote when I was like 19. Drove downtown in the rain, 9.30 on a Tuesday night, just to check out the late night record shop. Caught it impulsive, caught it compulsive, caught it insane. But when I'm surrounded, I just can't stop. This is from a version of Brian Wilson that Stephen recorded during our interview. You can call me Pablo You know, I'd never been diagnosed with anything. I hadn't thought too much about you know, mental health and diagnosis at all. What I had learned was the story of Brian Wilson himself from a friend of mine in university. You know, I... I wasn't a huge Beach Boys fan. I was a big Beatles fan, and I saw the Beach Boys as kind of being just too, too light and too, uh, you know, it was for the jocks, and it was like it, you know, it was less than. And he was like, "No, no, 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 no. Here you go." Uh, and he made me a tape, as we would do back in those days, of B sides and the, you know, the, you know, his his assemblage of the uh, the Smile record, which at that point hadn't been properly released or redone and you know told me the story of brian wilson and i fell in love with it i became so fascinated with it and at that point brian wilson and his his struggles were kind of a joke in the media and in rock and roll uh writing it was kind of wacky uh wacky drug casualty was the way people would kind of uh describe it he gained a bunch of weight. He, he didn't leave his house. That's he didn't right. get out of bed. He wrote songs in exchange for hamburgers. He had a he had a sandbox set up in his living room, and you know they are. I mean, they're some some of them are rock and roll excesses, but I think they're brought on by that that battle mm. that he's that he's fought most of his life, and uh, I think it struck a chord with me. Um, I kind of thought, oh, that's kind of like me in a way, like not the, not being a great artist, but the way um, you cope with it and also the way that music could help to lift me out of it or at least to refocus my mind. When you say cope with it and, and get out of it, what is the it that you're talking about? Oh, the it is depression. You know, I think okay. the idea of, um, you know, I thought, I thought about... Um, the way people would tell the story of Brian Wilson staying in bed all day um, was false, that it was really about the feeling that I would have where I was unable to get out of bed or didn't have the desire to at all. 
Brian Wilson is a beautiful mid-tempo song that sounds cheerful until you pay attention to the lyrics. It's a song he wrote, remember, years before he knew he had bipolar disorder. You know, go a few years later, Bare Naked Ladies had had their, their first album, which was a huge hit in Canada. Um, and we were, we made our second album and getting ready to put that out, which is always a time of intense anxiety and self-doubt for, for me and probably for a lot of artists out there. That moment where you finish the thing, you can't do anything about it. And it's not even so much that you're afraid it's going to tank. It's, it's you're afraid your people are going to hate it uh, or ignore it for me um, and, or not, not see in it what you see or what you put into it. Um, so all those things are going through my brain. We're getting ready to uh, make a video for the first single and I had that thing that you read about or you hear people say, I couldn't get out of bed, which to me always sounded like hyperbole until I actually couldn't get out of bed. Um, where my what did, that, what did that feel like? It felt almost like, you know, I could, I could move my fingers, but it felt like physical paralysis mixed with the, just a general fog, like, um, like, this thick fog over my body and brain and um, almost like I wasn't there. And that was when I thought, oh, that's what that means. Where actually we had to, you know, my my then wife called one of my best friends to come over and basically pull me out of bed, get me dressed and drive me to this video shoot where I then put the mask on and performed my task um, and then went home and crashed. That video is for the song Jane, by the way. It's fascinating to watch it on YouTube now, knowing what Stephen went through that day. And for several years there, what I would do, like when I wasn't on the road, I'd be home and my wife would be working. She was a teacher and I'd get up in the morning with her and she'd go off to work and I would go back to bed and I would spend the day in bed until just before she got home where I would get up and get dressed and make dinner or something like that and pretend that I'd had a day when I hadn't had a day. Did you identify that as depression? I think I was starting to understand that that was depression, but I saw depression as, so I went to the doc, I finally went to my family doctor who within five minutes diagnosed me as bipolar or manic depressive, as he said then. And, uh, and I just kind of took that as the gospel truth and, uh, and he said, well, I can get you uh, an appointment with a psychiatrist. Um, you know, I can make a referral if you want to call. So I called and I got an appointment eight months later. Oh, boy. Which is what it's like in Canada when it comes to mental health stuff. There's a lot that's great about that medical system. But the lack of resources when it comes to mental health um, are is pretty severe. So, you know, I took – I was prescribed – uh, Paxil and lithium by my family doctor and did that for, you know, until I went to the psychiatrist. And I kind of did what I always would do if people asked me how I was doing or what I was thinking, which was, I'm fine. Yeah, I, I'm okay. Um, which is totally counterproductive. I mean, it doesn't get you any help. But I could not bring myself past the shame of, of having something that I couldn't control about myself. So, and the doctor just said to me, you're not telling me the truth. 
So come back when you're ready to tell me the truth. Mm. And I, I never went back to him. I, you know, I, I took medication. I was on and off it for years. But I know that somewhere in me, I saw that depression or that the, the bipolar diagnosis as like a badge of honor. Like it, it, it kind of justified my, uh, my any bad behavior or uh, any way that I had disappointed anybody at all. Um, and it also kind of like somehow it, in my mind gave me um, verification that I was an artist Mm. And, uh, and that got me, got, you know, I worked with that for, you know, 10 years. But that seems like two different things. You had the shame of this thing that you couldn't control, but then it was also a badge of honor. Exactly. I talk, I do a lot of, um, public speaking about mental health and my mental health journey over the last bunch of years. And that's one of the things I talk about is that there, there is, I find that there is this, this, um, dual idea of what your mental health identity is. Um, you know, I think to identify as your mental health diagnosis is dangerous, especially when it's something like depression, anxiety. I mean, there are other, there are, are other far more severe mental health diagnoses that, that, that are become a bigger part of someone's identity, I think. But I think I hung on to what suited me at the time. And sometimes when I needed to feel justified uh, or I needed to feel a boost of some sort, I could wear that as a badge of honor. And uh, if if I was feeling bad about myself, I could wear it as a badge of shame. And I think it's both. I think it's always, that's inside of me. Um, there's always this struggle between, you know, shame and uh, and pride. It's funny that nowhere in that equation, in that very complicated equation, is how can I make this better? How can I improve? Did that just never cross your mind? Uh, I, I think, I was honestly. I, mean, I look at my, I look back at myself now with a certain degree of regret, and I think um, what I felt was more, or what I, how I approached it was more about how I could appear to other people as though I was fixing things or helping things. Um, but I didn't understand that I could have actual help that would help me. I didn't understand that I deserved the help also, but I, I didn't understand that when that happened, other positive things would happen from that. Um, so it wasn't till, you know, years later. So I was 38 and I was down here in upstate New York visiting my then girlfriend, now wife. And, uh, you know, I'd just been through a divorce. And, uh, you know, things were shaky all around me. And I was kind of going on all cylinders and got arrested down here for drug possession. Stephen Page was arrested in July of 2008 on cocaine possession charges in Syracuse, New York. And that led to some good things. Can't understand what I mean? You soon will. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, make it not so scary. 
But let's not kid ourselves. It's serious. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Back with Stephen Page. When last we left Stephen, it was 2008, and he had been arrested for cocaine possession. You know, the, eventually charges were dismissed, but part of that dismissal was the the requirement that I go through mental health treatment and uh, substance abuse treatment and so on. And, you know, I'd been to several different therapists over the years, too, and I was lucky enough to have the money to be able to pay for a, a psychotherapist because that's not like in in Ontario that's either not covered or covered very uh, slightly under on their public health insurance mm. um, so you could get you know a doctor who can give you a prescription but you have to wait eight to ten months to see them uh, might be covered but uh, a psychotherapist might not but I ended up seeing someone um, and their therapy was based in in CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and that clicked. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy is an approach aimed at spotting distortions in a patient's thinking. Stuff like disqualifying all positive information, jumping to conclusions, thinking your happiness depends on the actions of others. CBT then seeks to reroute those thought patterns to healthier places. Stephen went in ready to do the work. My relationship with him was the best I'd had. It was the first time I felt like I wasn't trying to impress a therapist. Uh I felt like most of my my relationships with therapists had been either me kind of like auditioning for them. Am I crazy enough? Or am I I funny and charming enough? Uh, Or it was like, it felt like almost competitive sometimes, like riffing. And, you know, I might have liked these people, but it just wasn't, ended up not being helpful. Um, you know, I, and I did some therapy where, you know, one therapist was a lot about digging into uh, my childhood and my past and so on. And I came out of that kind of angry at my parents and angry at people around me. And I gave myself permission to be mad at people for once, so I guess it was good. But that, I thought, I don't like feeling angry at people all the time. But with CBT, I felt like, and a lot of people say it clicks right away, like something happens in your brain, it rewires. It's It took me a long time. Like it's now, years later, that I, I realize that my responses to things, my, uh, you know, the lies that I tell myself deep down inside get changed. Like there's something that happens now where I go, oh, if this was 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I would have been miserable or I would have been beating myself up or I would have been in bed or I could have been dead. And none of those things are happening because the way I think, the way I see myself and the world has somehow changed. Do you have an example of of something that happened that you can talk about how you used to see it and then how you saw it after? Well, I'll give you a more more general day-to-day thing. Um, The way I make music and the way I perform on stage, I think 
I used to take everything so personally. Um, and I used to believe that, you know, I wouldn't say this out loud. And that's one of the things you discuss in CBT is like, you know, your core belief is sometimes something you don't actually think you believe because um, you've convinced yourself in other ways. Uh, the distortion has taken such a hold of you that it that that's right. has you fooled almost. That's right. And if I felt that I wasn't, uh, that I didn't deserve to be heard uh, by, you know, people I'm working with or deserve to be respected or deserve to be uh, appreciated, then, um, you know, that would manifest not in me saying, hey, I don't deserve this. It would manifest in me saying, hey, I deserve this. Give this to me. And, uh, you know, so it would be like, I think people walked on eggshells around me. I mean, I make myself seem like a total jerk, but I wasn't like, I was... You know, I was friends with with the people I made music with. I had a good relationship with the audience, but I knew that there were things where people would think, "Oh, Steve's going to get mad," mm. um, or or I would, you know, it would it would I'd keep it in and it would blow up. That stuff doesn't happen now. Now, um, like making music is hard work, and making, making music with other people is hard work, and sometimes it can make you nervous because um, you feel like maybe you're. A, you're not at the same level or you're not as prepared or whatever else. Um, but I can, I have the ability now to listen and understand what other people's intentions are um, and assume that people are coming from a good place. And also when they're not coming from a good place, understand that it's not all about me. Mm. Those are huge for me. Um, so it make, it makes, working really enjoyable. So, you know, I travel now mostly with, with my, my trio. Um, and it's easy. It's shockingly easy because we, we all respect and admire what each person brings to the process. And we also respect each other's space when we're in the van or whatever else too. Um, it's, you know, part of that's just being a grown up too, but but I think part of my brain wouldn't allow me to be that grown up. It was around the time of the arrest uh, in in Syracuse that your time with Bare Naked Ladies came to an end, correct? Yeah, it uh, it ended. So I was arrested in July and was out of the band by February. Um, yeah. Is that I, why uh, you left the band because of that incident? I'm sure that informed the whole thing. I mean, I, I didn't go, Hey, I was arrested. I want to be out of the band. But one of the, one of the byproducts of that was while I was going through the process of the conditions for the dismissal, um, I had to get, um, paroled into the country every time I would come into the United States to do a concert or whatever else. So, you know, and I was spending still a lot of time down here as my, my future wife was here and I was kind of building a life down here, but, but the travel to and from the shows was always separate for that whole time. So they would, you know, get on a plane or a bus or whatever from Toronto and go, and I would have to meet them. I'd have to cross the border on my own and meet them at the gig. And, you know, eight months of doing gigs where four guys are together and one guy's not ends up building up. Like what my, in my experience with my band, and I think with a lot of bands, there's always somebody who's slightly on the outs with the other guys and it rotates usually it's like okay now it's this guy now it's this guy's turn okay now he's in the group and it's my turn i'm on the outs i spent 
too long on the outs. And, and I wasn't getting music written. And I think they were sick of waiting for me. And I wanted to go and do a tour with them once everything was, was over. And they wanted to make another record. They were ready to go. And I had, I had nothing. And uh, we just couldn't make it work. And it was hard. Like we felt at the time, I think, you know, like just like a divorce, you know, we've been together for 20 years and you want to make it as amicable and as peaceful as possible and respectful. But then of course, through the process, it gets painful. All, everything gets, yeah. gets dredged up and it's difficult. Um, but also through that, I started to do stuff on my own, make my own records without shame. You know, when I made a record while I was still in the band and I felt like while I was making it, I was cheating on them somehow. But it was material that they didn't want to record anyways. Like it wasn't, some of that was just my brain and some of that was the the mood in the band. So when I started to be able to do that and make music with whomever I wanted to, um, you know, it's, it's stressful, but it, it was rewarding. And, uh, you know, I think they saw a life that maybe gave them some freedom they didn't have without me dictating stuff all the time inside their band that we ended up, I think both think being pretty happy with being apart, which is yeah. also a weird thing and kind of hurts. Like, you know, it hurts to see, <laughs> hurts to see your ex happy uh, or right. okay with where they're at now. Or four of your exes playing concerts. <laughs> That's together. right. Um, well, I mean, it, it makes sense if you're in a job for 20 years that, that you might move on to a, a different job at some point. Um, but I, I've wondered too, like, Part of what I liked about Bare Naked Ladies music is that it was this sort of fun party band kind of feeling. But then there's songs like Brian Wilson or um, I don't know if it's called Light Up My Yard. Light Up, of, my, light up my, my Room. Yeah. Light Up My Room, which is just a beautiful song and, and a melancholy song. And I wonder if that was you, if if you were the one kind of delivering that as you dealt with bipolar disorder all those years. I think for the most part it was. And I think I think fans kind of got got who were, you know, who were diehards understood that dichotomy. But I think we were also Ed and I were good at bringing out the opposites in each other. We you know, either some of it was sneaky, like you'd almost force the other guy to say something in a song that you didn't have the guts to say yourself. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, he would do that to me as often as I would do that to him. So, you know, I think about a song like, and which was another big hit for us, Pinch Me, which Ed sang and we wrote together. I mean, it's a dark song. That's to me is a song about depression. When Stephen mentioned this, I thought, wait a minute, I know that song. I remember Pinch Me. It's a funny song. There's a line about running through a sprinkler. There's an underwear joke. But then I listened for the depression. Check out the lyrics. On an evening such as this It's hard to tell if I exist If I pack the car and leave this town Notice that I'm not around I could hide out under there I just made you say underwear You know, but it's but it's got this this sunny and and it's got jokes in it and whatever else just like depressed yeah. people have you know we can we can right. you know outside <laughs> is still is still light and bright uh, we still and, have hooks even if we're depressed exactly right and i i think that for me what it took me a long time to realize was that 
it was okay to aim for the the middle ground between the dark and the light. And I found that in the music. And I felt like, you know, sometimes then I felt like people aren't getting it. They think we're just these these fun, silly guys, which is a part of who we are. And as we got more popular, I'd look in, my, look in the audience and I felt like I was seeing fewer and fewer people that were like a reflection of me or me at 14 or whatever else. I was seeing kind of the popular kids out there. But then I realized, mm. well, we're the popular kids now which felt foreign um, and and alien to me. But mentally, it took me a long time after that to realize that, like, my best writing is not when I'm depressed or when I'm manic. My best writing is when I'm doing okay. But the fact that I have the experience of both the manic and and the depressive episodes has been helpful to me because I'm able to look at them from the outside and and write about them. I have a song on my last record called Feel Good Summer, which is, again, very up-tempo uh, kind of song uh, that is really a song about a manic episode. It's a song about having the uncontrollable urge to step in front of a truck um, as it's barreling down the street. And, you know, I heard... It's one of these ones where I, I, as I was writing it, I don't even know what I was thinking. It was just coming out. And then I was listening to a demo of it one day as I was driving and I just started bawling. And I thought, oh, I guess the song works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had been feeling fine. But I thought, wow, I wrote about something that to me is so real emotionally and, and mentally that might not resonate with anybody else, but it... I said exactly to me what I think having a manic episode feels like. You talk about how you write your best stuff when you're feeling okay. How do you get to okay these days? How have, how have you found your path to okay? Well, um, you know, I, like I said, I think the CBT really started to, to kick in. Uh, like I started to take it seriously. I also had a lot at stake. You know, when all this stuff was happening, I had three young children. I mean, my, I have three grown children now and two stepkids. Uh, and I started to be, to be able to see it sounds terrible again to say this, but I started to be able to really see the world outside of me. Um, and that included my family. I think I used to think of my family as part of me. Um, and that can't be healthy for any of them. And to be able to let stuff go uh, has been helpful. It's a weird thing that's happening right now, you know, as we're, we're recording this in lockdown and I'm, uh, you know, I think about, social media, which I, you know, used to be very active posting on and I've stopped because I felt like my, honestly, my skin was too thin for any of the, the trolls out there. And mm -hmm. it wasn't about, you know, a bad review or somebody writing, you know, people would just wrote mean stuff just for the hell of it. And they still do. Um, but now because I'm doing a lot more music online, I feel like I need to engage with people fans out there um, and connect with them. And right now it's 
the warmth and positivity out there in a pretty bleak time, uh, at least on my side of the fence, has been really wonderful. And uh, I wonder if some of that is just how I'm presenting myself to people. Um, yeah. That, the, that it's safe that to, to have a, a conversation with me that I'm not, I'm not going to cut them down, that I'm going to walk away from the computer if I go, that's a dumb thing for someone to say. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to start typing away frantically at them and make them feel worse. Right. Um, I have to prove them wrong. That's right. I've never met them. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And they only said this because they got this lyric wrong because they liked the song. <laughs> right. When my when my kids were really little, I remember once um, my my eldest son, who's now twenty, almost twenty four, uh, he was three or four then, and we were I was picking him up from his his like kitty art class, and uh, it was kind of the height of the bare naked ladies' visibility and, and popularity, and so I was putting him in the car in his car seat and buckling him in and and uh, I could see a group of teenagers walking towards me back when teenagers knew who I was and so I frantically like try and buckle him in and I jump in the car and peel off because I'm so concerned about keeping my family private and as I didn't say anything as we're pulling away my son just said they just really like your music dad <laughs> so he saw the whole thing go on <laughs> and got it and I was like wow He's absolutely right. And I still hear that voice when I'm engaging with people now. And it might, I might not be in the best mood or the best frame of mind, or I might take something the wrong way. And I, and it's those little lessons you learn that you turn, you know, hopefully your brain starts to automatically turn the switch. It doesn't mean that I don't grapple with depression and manic episodes and anxiety because I do all the time. But what's been good is for the most part and touch electronics here um i've been able to catch it sooner and whether that means then going to the doctor and and trying to find a new uh you know course of medications or going back into into therapy or mindfulness or any of that kind of stuff starts to work better and faster um that i'm able to keep working through most of that stuff and it ends up lasting a lot a lot less less uh uh doesn't feel like forever anymore yeah i mean i i tell people all the time it's not a matter of wiping out your depression or or any other mental thing that's going on it's a matter of managing it like right. keeping it restrained in the back seat and not letting it take the wheel well i think that now that i'm more able to see uh the effect it has on other people and more able to care about that or feel like I, it, that I can do something about it mm. makes me want to do something about it, which makes it happen sooner. Was the arrest, was the cocaine a symptom or a problem in and of itself? Well, for, for legal reasons, I probably shouldn't talk too specifically about that, but I will talk to you about, about substances in general and alcohol too. Like I realized that Looking back, that all of my worst memories as an adult, alcohol was involved, or substances were involved, and uh, um, that was a good a good reason to not do that anymore. Um, and you know, and part of part of my journey was that you know doing uh, education, treatment, and uh, going to meetings and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, as they say in in addiction 
uh, circles. Only you can say whether you're an addict or not. Um, and I kind of decided, well, I decided I'm not. And that's the kind of thing, like, I know, whatever, recently a bottle of wine was open. I had a glass, didn't want any more. Like, that's great. I can do that. I have no desire for it. That's the way better thing for me. Mm. Um, so working on my behavior and my outlook on life has been, has been the focus. What do you know now about mental health that you wish you knew a long time ago? Oh, I wish, I wish I knew how common it was to, to struggle with mental health. And I wish I knew how it was okay. Not, you know, it's okay to be okay is a great phrase, but it's not my phrase, but it's okay to ask for help. Um, that doing it yourself, you know, I found this with music. I found this with everything. Like you can, I can be a solo artist and not do it alone. Um, you know, I can ask people for help where I need it. And to be able to, to ask for help is a big step. Um, the other thing I wish I knew was that, uh, that I had the power to say no, like to be my own mental health advocate and find the, the therapy, whether it's pharmaceutical or, or talk therapy or whatever else that worked best for me. Um, I didn't think I had choices and, uh, you know, I've, I've been through a lot of different, uh, situations and, uh, you know, I'm happy that I've actually been able to take the time, but I wish it hadn't taken me so long. I wish that as a teenager, I'd been able to go and, and seek help. Stephen Page is online at stephenpage.com, Stephen with a V. He has a new song there called Isolation that you may enjoy. On our next episode, we're going to the movies. Well, staying home and talking about movies. Movies that get depression right. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. The production team for this episode includes Chrissy Pease, Christina Lopez, Phyllis Fletcher, and John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available. Text the word HOME to 741-741 for the crisis text line or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're free 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say and what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOkay.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter, and come visit us on Facebook. Just search for the name of the show or search for Thwadballs. I'm John Moe. Bye now. 
dark, that's the problem. What if I was to tell you I'm Paiachi? This great big smile is just for show. What if I was to tell you this is just grease paint? Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know